You're listening to Life Sparring, fighting mediocrity one round at a time. In the blue corner, weighing in at least three kilograms above his target weight, even before the holidays, from Hong Kong, your host, Fabian Gruber. And in the red corner, a flyweight on the scale, but a heavyweight on the trail running circuit. A popular fitness influencer and successful founder of supplement startup Dix Hydration. From Perth, Australia, Vlad Exo. This is Life Sparring, round one. Let's go. So, hi Vlad. Welcome to Life Sparring. So I'm super happy that you are the first one that I'm jumping into this virtual ring with because without lying, you were on top of my list. And that's basically because you're three guests in one. You're a trail running legend, I would say. You build a career as a coach and also as an influencer in the meantime. And then you are a startup entrepreneur. And um, I hope we can dip into all three of those uh, careers that you are running. Yeah, 100%. I would love to. But let's start at the beginning. How did you grow up and how did you get into trail running? Yeah, I mean, I was pretty far away from running or trail running when I was young. I was born in Ukraine. And then in 1991, we moved to Israel when the Soviet Union collapsed. So my grandmother was Jewish, so we were able to get citizenship in Israel straight away. And then I lived in Israel till the age of 14. And then we moved to Australia when I was 14. And then probably when I was about 27, I spent five years in Hong Kong. So yeah, I got to travel quite a, a bit, live in a few different places. But trail running and running in general for me started at the age of 25. So I was a good junior tennis player when I was young, when I was about 14, 15, 16. But that kind of stopped when I was about 17. And I pretty much didn't do any sporting activity from 17 to about 25. So the only running I would do is I would run to the bottle shop before it closes to make sure that I can get my alcohol for the day. So there was definitely a couple of unhealthy years there as a student. I was studying architectural drafting and architecture and I studied a bit of marketing as well. Like at the beginning, I worked as a tennis coach, trying to find my way in life. And then 25, just before my 25th birthday, I pretty much quit smoking. And one day I said, this is just enough. It's so unhealthy. And I don't want the next quarter of my life to look the same as the first quarter. And I signed up to a marathon about two or three days after without any training. And I did that marathon. And it was obviously the hardest thing I've ever done to that point and it was so painful and I couldn't walk for like three weeks after it but it was a very satisfying moment for me finally at setting myself a goal and achieving it I was pretty good in not finishing things before so I was pretty good at starting things but not really finishing them like my studying degrees and all that and a lot of other things so it was definitely nice to have something very achievable and I think I got really addicted to that finish line feeling of finishing a race. I'm sure that people that listen to this that have done a running race, there is a bit of a high that goes on after finishing a race, even if you have a good or a bad race. And I got addicted to that feeling. And since then, I probably would have done maybe 250, 300 races in the last eight years. When I read the story about your tennis career, I, I was really like astonished because you got into tennis quite late. I mean, a lot of uh, tennis players start with six or so. Yeah, I'm pretty good at picking things up really quickly. So my first tennis racket was from Kmart, which is 
Imagine an Aldi in Germany selling tennis rackets. They sell the cheapest tennis rackets. And I just got some tennis lessons, group tennis lessons at the age of 14. And most of the other people in that class were eight, nine years old. Like that was my level. But yeah, I had that tennis racket. I stole some balls from the local tennis club. And I was just hitting against the wall in my house for like a few hours every day. And yeah, from when I got to about the age of 15, I was playing the Nationals, which is the top 64 juniors in the country. So yeah, I got to travel a bit with tennis as well around Australia. And I, I, got, I improved really quickly, but then mentally I just didn't have it. My game was as good as anybody else out there, pretty quick, pretty strong. But mentally, I just wasn't there maybe because of the lack of experience. But yeah, definitely picked it up very quickly. And, and it also ended up really quickly. So yeah, from my first lesson at the age of 14 to retiring from tennis at the age of 17 and in the middle being pretty much a full-time junior player in Melbourne. So I moved when I was 15, I moved from Perth to Melbourne, which is a five-hour flight away. It's 5,000 kilometers away. And I lived there by myself when I was 15 to train full-time in a tennis academy in Melbourne, which was kind of a fun step for a 15-year-old that doesn't have to go to school anymore. That was probably the best year of my life. But yeah, I kind of picked it up very quickly, but also achieved a level that I just couldn't go past because of my mental abilities, which in tennis, mental is a lot different than running because in tennis, there's a lot of breaks. Every point has got to start, finish, and then you have a break in between. And if your mind is not on the right track and your mind can go somewhere else during those little breaks, your match is lost or your set is lost. And that's what I was struggling with. So a lot of the time I would win the first few games. My mind will start wondering, thinking about the next match or the next match after that, or even the finals of this tournament where while I'm still in the first round. And the next thing I know, I kind of shake myself up and, you know, losing the match. I wasn't extremely angry. I was more like disappointed in myself that I again let my mind drift away after winning the first three or four games and then suddenly waking up to losing the, the second set somehow. But running doesn't have it. The good thing about running and probably why it fits me, there's a start and there's a finish. There's no breaks in between. So you just got to keep going. You don't really have time to analyze, overthink. You just push. Where in tennis, there's a lot of talented players out there, but the ones that stay on top and do well, I'm mentally very, very strong. I obviously have a different mental strength, which is just training and, and stuff like that. But it's a, a special skill that not many have. I mean, it's definitely interesting because if I look at your running career, I mean, you started with two marathons and then the next race was the 250 kilometers through the desert in Chile. So that also takes a special mind, I would say. Yeah, exactly. So it's a different mental strength. I've got no problem of running every single day. I've been running every single day for the last eight years. I have the mental strength to do that. Between points, when, when there's that break, I, I was struggling with that. So my mind would go somewhere else. Well, it would go to the future. What's not somewhere else? It will just start thinking about the future instead of staying in the present. And in running, you don't have that. You, you're there in the moment till you cross the finish line. So yeah, that was the difference, I guess, with my unsuccessful tennis career. Yeah, but it's, uh, no, it's very interesting. And I think it says a lot about your character. I mean, obviously, it says a lot about your athletic talent because that you would most likely have succeeded in a whole different sport. Yeah, when I was growing up, there was many times where I was in a soccer team. I was doing athletics because I did well in the school championships. 
when I, a couple of other sports, but my parents just couldn't afford the training. I remember in year maybe five, so maybe when I was seven or eight, I did well in inter-school like race in school. And then the coach is like, yeah, you should go and train with a local athletic club. And I did, and I went a few times. And I can remember it was maybe 20 or $30 for six months of training in, in a, this athletic club. This is 25 years ago. But literally my parents just didn't have that money at that point. And every week I'll tell the coach, yeah, I'm going to bring the money next week, next week, next week. And I got to the point where I just couldn't really show my face anymore. And that happened with few sports like that happened with sports like judo and and soccer and, and athletics. So yeah, I was a bit unlucky in that sense. And then once we get to Australia, that's why my parents had a bit of money to actually pay for a tennis lesson for me, which yeah, that was at the age of 14. So probably a tiny bit too late, but kind of made the most out of that at least. I mean, your, your running statistics are pretty insane. Just the, the races that the International Trail Running Association tracks, I think you you have 69% in the top three and uh, 27 victories out of 61 races that they're tracking. So what motivates you? Is it the winning or is it still just reaching the finish line? I think there's two things that motivate me is not losing and then continuing this incredible lifestyle that I had for the last eight years. Obviously, I've been super lucky with the way my lifestyle has kind of developed in the last few years and running gave me that chance. So yeah, for me, I just kind of understand the formula was to race a lot and, and to try and do well. And I never had in, in my mind to win a UTMB or win a Western States. That was never a goal for me. My goal, like even if I look at goals that I've written down over the last few years, it's always maintained that same lifestyle and kind of play it a, probably a little bit safer so do smaller races but do more of them and that kind of means that you have more chances to do well it's probably not the way that i would look at racing if i was a lot younger so obviously now i'm 33 and a lot of those decisions were made at 29 30 31 kind of i knew i didn't have years left to really chase a big race that would change my life so, and it's not like winning UTMB means that I'll win $10 million and I'm set for life. The prize money of winning UTMB is, is 1,000 euro. You know what I mean? Yeah. So for me, it was more about winning races consistently. That always helped my coaching. So that helped me have 30 clients pretty much being full with coaching for the last six years. And that was kind of the thinking behind my goal. So it wasn't do really well in running, it's rather do well enough so you can keep your sponsors, you can keep your coaching and try and build up on that. Because obviously I know that for the future, I might have another five, six good years of running. And then after that, it's not like I'm going to end up with $20 million in the bank account that I can kind of retire mm -hmm. on like NBA players. Rather start thinking about that in the last few years. And that meant that, yeah, consistency of racing and training and, and doing a lot of races. Like I was lucky even this year, to do 25, 26 races, where a lot of other athletes would look at this as like two or three races a year. For me, if I don't hit 30 races a year, it's a very slow year of racing. And you race a lot of different races. I mean, you do basically all distances and you even tried your jobs at triathlon. Yeah, 100%. I'm not scared of racing different distances. When you do so many races, you kind of give yourself like almost a pass out, like didn't do too well because that's not my distance or... It's not the greatest mentality, but also it's more about the kind of trying different things because I know that 
it's not a life-changing event if I win a race or not, if you know what I mean. So yeah, I got into triathlons because a few people asked me to coach them for triathlon and I went all in. At that time I was in Germany and then the next two weeks I did a triathlon every single week for the whole month from zero triathlon, never swimming in my life, not never having a road bike to doing a triathlon race every single week. So how was the swimming and the biking part? I definitely enjoyed it and I definitely would have continued with that if it wasn't consuming so much of my time. I started swimming, literally I learned it on YouTube. And at the beginning, I had a gym membership for a gym in Frankfurt and they had an indoor swimming pool that was 17 meters long. And I'll go there in the morning for about 10 minutes. I'll do 10 minutes of swimming in the morning and then 10 minutes of swimming in the afternoon because my form was just so bad. So swimming anything more than 10 minutes and my form and technique will really be affected by it. So it was just really smart sessions for a couple of good months. And I stopped triathlons in 2008 and my fastest swim was exactly 30 minutes or maybe just under 30 minutes for a half Ironman distance of 1.9k. So like, yeah, I went from struggling to swim 50 meters or 25 meters, even though I was a fit runner, to coming out of the swim probably in the top five of the age groupers after maybe six months. So it was That's definitely pretty, a fun experience to learn new skills crazy. and same with the bike. I never had a bike. When I was a kid, the only bike that I would have would be a broken up BMX that we found and we fixed me and my friends in the neighborhood. So buying your first bike at the age of 30, it's definitely a bit of a challenge. And yeah, I kind of learned how to use the clip-ons, shoes and stuff like that and cycle on those really thin tires that before, if you're not a cyclist, it just seems so hard, but I kind of got to spend a bit of time on the bike and I did well on the bike as well. I think my fastest time on the bike for the half Ironman was two hours 20. So it's just holding about 40 kilometers an hour for two hours and 20 minutes. So yeah, I definitely got that mental ability to just train and train and train, which I really enjoy. Yeah, but uh, you must have also somehow figured out how to learn things. You must have like a special approach. I mean, it's the internet. There's enough there's so much information and I still do to, till today. I'm learning Photoshop and Final Cut Pro and I just watch YouTube videos and uh, learn it online. There's so much information out there. It just takes time to sit down and kind of go through different things and then experiment by yourself. So I would learn something. There was a few times that I would take my computer to the swimming pool, literally, which seemed kind of funny, but I would play that video that they teach you how to pull water under your body a few times that I go practice it, go back again, watch it. I've done that since I was actually in college. So I wouldn't even go to classes. I would just like learn how to use all the architectural programs at home. And then I would just submit the final projects because I was just always better at like visual learning instead of written learning. So that kind of the internet mm. kind of made it easier for me. So what role did sponsorships play for you in your career? Massive. I remember obviously the goals that I've written to myself in 2013. So this is like a year after starting to write or running. I knew that I needed to get a sponsorship. So that was on top of my goals list because I knew that races don't have any prize money. And if I do want to maintain this kind of lifestyle of racing and training and stuff like that, I knew that I need to get some support from a sponsor. And obviously I've had few little sponsors before and free shoes and free stuff like that. But in 2014, I got a sponsorship with North Face and that was a massive part that just allowed me to breathe a little bit. And then 
by 2016, that's when I finally got out of my minus in my credit card. So all this time from 25 to about 28 years old, I was on a minus on my credit card. So I was always in debt because I had to obviously pay for all the races myself. So that was the finally when I could breathe a little bit. And it's just the kind of struggle that I had to go through. But it definitely made me kind of appreciate as well having the support from a sponsor. And I wouldn't be today without the North Face. I wouldn't be where I am today for sure. And how can I imagine this kind of sponsorship contract with a sponsor like the North Face Hong Kong? Do you get a monthly allowance or do they pay just racing entry fees? So I was pretty much the first one to get a monthly payments in Asia, I would say, Australia and Asia in 2000. And I would like to say 15 or 16, about five years ago. So 2015. So the first year was just product and help with traveling. So I would have a travel allowance for, I think it was four races in the beginning. So it's four races that I can go pretty much anywhere I wanted, if that's the US, if it's anywhere in Asia, if it's Europe. So it was already a massive sponsorship. And I realized that if I can play my cards right, I'm going to ask for some you know, financial help the year after that. And I think that they saw the value of my social media growth, always trying to give some value back in, through my social media to other runners. And I think they saw that. And also, I think that I kind of negotiated a good deal for myself because I was racing a lot. So I had something to back up. So I'd say like, look, I've done those 30 races this year. I won 28 of them. You know, my Instagram account has went from 2000 to 10,000. My Facebook went from this and this. So I definitely, I was pretty lucky. And at the same time, I was thinking about it. I was planning for it because I knew that that's the next step for me to kind of move forward. Obviously, the, we're not talking about big amounts of money at all. Like it's not soccer, it's not football. So those amounts were just enough to cover the basic living costs. So it might just cover my rent. But knowing that my rent in Hong Kong was covered, that kind of meant that the money that I was making from coaching and I can finally start saving some money. So I was, I was about to say rent in Hong Kong. Yeah, is, exactly. Uh... <laughs> yeah. So that, that uh, and I remember, I actually remember them saying it to them that I need this amount just to cover my rent. So I'm not trying to become rich. That's not the goal. So obviously they never paid an athlete before. So that was very new to them. But part of my argument was I just need my rent to be covered. I'm not looking to buy a Ferrari. You know what I mean? I just need the basics mm -hmm. of getting my rent cover. And it got a tiny bit better with every year, but very small amounts. So it's something that helped me kind of take the pressure away a little bit so I can do other things, so I can spend more time developing my skills as a coach, obviously training better and ultimately starting my own hydration company, which obviously we only launched it a year ago, but that was in the making for over two and a half years and probably three years that I, and another year before that, that I was already thinking about that. So, I mean, that kind mm -hmm. of gave me that kind of a bit more stability to think and try to develop some things for the future, which was, yeah, super lucky instead of me trying to hustle to get my rent paid that was already covered so I can focus a bit more on my training, developing skills and thinking about the future, was, which, which was pretty big. And having a regional sponsor most likely also played a role in you focusing more on races in APEC. And... To be honest, I know that I focused only on Asia because 
the marketing value that I was getting from doing well in races in Asia was a lot greater, I think, at that point than doing well in, in international races. And it was easier to do well in Asia because it's less competitive. So I knew that as long as I can make it to the top three, that's a good result. And North Face can see that as a top three finish, which maybe at the same time, my level would have only been good enough to finish in the top 10 in Europe. It doesn't look as great. So in a way of keeping my sponsorship, I knew that that looks a little bit better on paper. Like you said, obviously, they were focused more on Asia. So that was a big positive and that worked well for me. And also, I think that in Asia, there's a little bit more, I guess, people like a little bit warmer to me as well. I've raced all over the world. And if I race in the US, nobody even like cares that I'm there or even if they know me or heard of me or saw me. Where in Asia, they would come and like say hello. And I felt that that was kind of important because they would post pictures of me with them in social media. So that marketing value was really high compared to doing a race in the US. And North Face would look at things like that. I think that any business would look at that because they, they would have to present a report so they can show that as examples of part of their report, why we're spending an X amount of money on Vlad Excel every year. And that was part of the package. And I really felt that those little percentages helped me to stay with that sponsorship for five years so far and going forward, hopefully for longer. And it helped you with the coaching, I guess, too. I assume you're, most of your clients are people who enter races that you are also entering and who know you from the starting line. A hundred percent. I knew that the more races I'm in, the more handshakes that I have at the end of the race, the more hellos that I say, the more coaching clients I can get. And obviously, I didn't start with 30 coaching clients in the beginning. So I think that that was very important straight from the beginning. And I knew that. I knew if I show up to two races a year, I'm not going to get enough clients. I was 26, 27 at that time. I knew that I needed to do a lot more. So yeah, racing a lot just kind of made sense to me. And even today, me trying to build a brand of my hydration company, again, I understand the importance of showing up to a lot of races. And that's why I did a race last weekend and I'm doing one tomorrow and I'll do one in the first week of January. And again, I'll try and hit 30 races next year because it's such a big part of marketing and it's free marketing instead of me paying hundreds of dollars to a magazine or facebook ads or instagram ads here i am there in the flash and it's a lot more real and i think that it's really really beneficial for somebody like me in my position and how did you coach so you did always uh, do a mix between face-to-face -face coaching and online coaching right when i was in hong kong i was doing a lot of one-on-one -on -one coaching because obviously you can charge a little bit more per an hour so I started very low and then I kind of worked my way up, pricing it higher and higher as I was getting more demand and I was, as I was getting bigger. Online coaching was probably a bit smaller back then for me because I knew that I could get, let's say, 15 clients a week on one-on-one -on -one where we can work on form and you know strength work one-on-one, -on -one, a lot of wealthy people in Hong Kong. And then about half of it was online coaching because I knew that it's a little bit more flexible. So when I was traveling to races, I can still do it. When I was back home in Australia for Christmas and other kind of times where I'd be in Europe for a few months a year as well, I wouldn't spend the Hong Kong summer. So we would spend three to four months every year in Germany. So I knew that I could do it there. So that made sense to me to never let go of it, even though the one-on-one -on -one coaching was making a lot more money. And then probably in the last three years, the one-on-one -on -one coaching was just not time efficient anymore. So it pretty much all moved to online coaching. 
And did you feel like a massive boost this year with COVID? The Hong Kong trails are packed at the moment. It's hard to run. People are just hiking and uh, sightseeing, taking pictures. No, to be honest, I've got some people that have been coaching for quite a while. And I know that some of them were actually kind of happy to have a break from racing. And some of them, we kind of said, let's have a little break from coaching. You don't need to kind of have that mentality of what you do every single day. So in many ways, my coaching did drop a little bit, but that was fine with me. I get a lot of requests for coaching and now I get a little bit pickier. And probably two years ago was the first time I ever said no to a client as well. Four years leading up to that, like I was saying yes to everything. And that was empowering to finally have enough money in the bank, enough clients, enough security to say no to somebody, especially when you didn't have anything for many, many years. That was very, very powerful. And today, if I have few people that are on a break for a few months, it doesn't really bother me where before it did. So actually, this COVID just meant that I had a little bit more time to do other things and focus a little bit more on my training is the first time that I was able to train. Even though I was still racing a lot, there was no big races that can really throw away my training. So it was the first time since I started running that I can actually put in proper training. And I'm the fittest right now than I've ever been which that's thanks to COVID, obviously a lot of bad things that came out of it. But luckily for me, that was, yeah, that was a big positive. Yeah, I was surprised. I was uh, almost expecting you got more requests simply because if the gyms are closed, people are working from home, they don't have to commute. They just have more time for it, for running by themselves. Yeah, but I think that most people that are pretty much everybody that are coached there is like a, a goal. There's a race. There's few races that we mm -hmm. might look at. So it's easier to train towards that goal because that training will be designed to that race. If it's a 50K trail race, a 100K trail race, a marathon, half marathon. So that training is designed behind that. So once we had no races, the training kind of had to drop a little bit and we had to work a little bit on building a base, which is not super fun because it's a lot of the same things week after week after week. So I think few people were kind of, let's have give this a little bit of a break. And also, I think that people were a bit unsure of what's going to happen next, um, a bit scared to spend money on coaching where it's obviously it's not a necessity. So I think that few people were thinking that way for sure. And I respect that. And a few people stopped coaching because of that. And that's obviously that's 100% fine with me. I think I'm in a lucky position to still have work. But yeah, I don't, it's definitely did not increase the, the business. My kind of requests have always been fairly high because... I put up the workouts on YouTube. So most of the people that contact me would see some of my workouts on YouTube that have been growing and growing and growing in the last few months. So I guess the referral coaching has definitely dropped, but new clients from Guatemala and Colombia that I'm coaching right now, they came from YouTube, from India. They all came from YouTube, where before that I was very focused on word to mouth. So it was Hong Kong, Singapore, and a little bit of Australia, and that was it. But now a lot more kind of international for Europeans, people could Germans, um, Americans. And yeah, that came from definitely putting out the workouts on YouTube. Yeah, the social media played always a big role for you. I mean, you were quite strategic about it. Yeah, but, 100%. Um, I think that yeah. today it's so, so important. Personally, obviously, you've met me and maybe you haven't met me for long enough, but I'm pretty close. I'm not outgoing and, and really loud. I kind of have like those two personalities one is when i do a talk or i do coaching where i come out of my normal shell because i become almost a different character but personally i'm very closed so social media i guess it didn't come that easy to me 
but it's something that I had to kind of purposely put in work and kind of make sure that I keep up with it because I know how important it is and how many doors it's open. For an example, with our hydration tablet, all the distributors that we have right now in 10 different countries all reached me from my personal Instagram account, which is it's all the work that I've done in, on Instagram for the last five years has paid off right there. So I understand how important it is and, and platforms like YouTube, I can see how powerful it is from putting out 30 workouts on YouTube and getting 40 requests from coaching for the last six months. That's massive. Even though I didn't take all of them, just seeing how many people would contact me about coaching from seeing a workout on YouTube, I think even kind of shows me how important, more than what I thought, how important social media is. And it seems like you blew up a bit in social media over the last, I would say, one year, or one and a half years. I mean, definitely. I mean, I think that I changed my thinking instead of posting another picture of a run and, and another workout or another race win. I definitely kind of, I gave away all my secrets. So for many years, all those exercises, I would just do it for my client coaching. But then I kind of reverse engineered my way of doing social media. And yeah, it went from 20,000 to 70,000 in a space of a year just by giving out value. And at the same time, losing a lot of followers that followed me before because I'm vegan or because they enjoyed my running content, maybe or running pictures. So yeah, at the same time, I gained a lot, definitely lost a lot because of this kind of changing up my feed a little bit, but it's definitely paid off and it is valuable in today's market, especially if you have something to monetize, right? I don't make too much money out of social media. I have a lot of offers and for posts and stuff like that. And I might do a few sponsored posts if they kind of fit in with my thing, but I say no. Like before our chat, I was talking with a fitness brand about doing an Instagram post and a YouTube video and just didn't really click, but it's definitely possible to make a lot of money from it. It's not something that I am worried about, but it's definitely strong. There's a lot of potential in social media. Yeah, and of course you have a sponsor already where you can leverage your reach then to um, negotiate your contract yeah definitely it definitely helps i know that they're looking at it they're writing those numbers so it's something that i also have to be aware of because i can go through a few weeks of no posting because i got no interesting posts especially around COVID when my training became base training it's just boring training day after day the races in perth are not that beautiful as well there's not as many photographers as hong kong i've done so many races where there was no photographers at all so i had nothing to really post so yeah Definitely, it's something that I need to sometimes kind of remind myself, keep it up because this is super important for sponsorship and for anything I do later on. I think that personal brand has been the main driver of my hydration tablet right now. Obviously, the coaching, it's always been, but now seeing how much it helped Bix has been incredible. Now then, let's talk about Bix. So how did Bix come about? It was definitely while I was training in Hong Kong for the first summer in Hong Kong, so I spent five years in Hong Kong. The first summer I was there for summer. And then the next four summers, we, we went to Europe because it was just too hot. If you're running twice a day in that heat and humidity, you're trying to hit 160K a week, 180K a week on the trails. And there's no races. Yeah, there's no races at all. There's few little races that nobody does. Yeah, it was really hard. So at that point, there was a few days where I calculated how much I was drinking and it was close to 12 to 14 liters a day and i was still feeling really exhausted and fatigued from all that training in that heat and humidity and then i was always taking hydration tablets i always knew the importance of hydration in general i used to use noon 
I used to use high five for years. So I had that thinking about it for a good year. Then I remember kind of coming to Germany for the first time for a big block of probably three or four months. And I went to DM and, and all the other supermarkets and seeing how many hydration tablets there were there, like dissolvable tablets, obviously very different ingredients and stuff like that. But you can get a tube in DM for one and a half, two euros, a pack of 20. And so I was like, oh, perfect. So I got my vitamin C, my zinc, my magnesium. I can all get all those tablets for fairly cheap prices as well. So I remember that I was like, okay, that's perfect. After every run, I'll have five different tablets. I'll mix it up in some water. But that obviously wasn't too healthy on my stomach. So I was starting to get unhealthiness from my stomach because of all the chemicals that those cheap tablets use. But I also kind of realized that Germany was probably the leading market for that effervescent tablets. So I kind of came with the idea, look, I know what kind of athletes need for recovery. So obviously the electrolytes are important, but you also need the zinc, the magnesium, a little bit of iron. You need a little bit more to kind of make sure that your body comes back to training the next day. So we went to a lot of manufacturers with our list of ingredients and everybody's like, no, cannot be done, cannot be done. Too many things cannot be done, cannot be done. We then we kind of worked with a German sports scientists to try and kind of put it all together in a way for it to work. And we had few actually that said, all right, well, that looks a lot more manageable. So we wanted a lot more than what we have now. Now we have 12 vitamins and minerals in the tablet. We wanted, I remember, probably started with 18 or something like that. And then we kind of worked it down to, to what we have right now, which was 11 in the beginning. And then we spent a lot of time developing the taste as well. So I've, I think for years, people got used to this chemical taste in hydration tablets. And it was just normal. Yeah, it's kind of like a fake sweet to it. So we spent a lot of time kind of testing, retesting, resending. And that took a good probably year and a half of just kind of retesting, testing and, and changing the flavors like little bits and little bits till we got to where we are today. And we launched pretty much December last year, probably officially, probably January this year. So yeah, just about hitting 12 months of operation. And like it couldn't be the worst time to launch a company in the world. The corona pretty much hit one month after we started launching. And I can see the numbers from January was super high. And then February kind of dropped as the corona hit. The shop, All the races have stopped in Hong Kong. Shops were scared. There were, people were scared to take on new products, spend money. Distributors were scared to take on new products. So it was definitely a tough kind of beginning to it. But then slowly we kind of started increasing again and again and again. And it's just been growing with every month as people, I guess, see the difference between Bix and a lot of other brands out there. And our production cost is so much higher than any other tablet there that you're going to end up with a better product. And in many ways, I don't come from a business background where when I was thinking about making Bix, I didn't have the mentality of, okay, let's put as little ingredients possible to make this product as cheap as possible so we can have the biggest margin. That was not my thinking. I didn't realize how cheap some of the other products were till probably a year and a half ago when we got some quotes about formulations of other companies. We realized, wow, <laughs> our product is really expensive to make because our thinking was not, I wanted to create a good product. And then along the way, we kind of figure out the pricing and all that. But I didn't come up with kind of, let's make as much money as we can which a lot of companies do, and that's fine. But I don't come from that businessman background. My goal was to create a good product that I won't have to sit and lie to people about. I don't want to sit in front of somebody and say, look, this is good for you. And this has got some value and give me $10 for it. 
where it's got nothing in it except a little bit of salt and some chemical. So yeah, that was kind of important to me. And I think that it just took a little bit of time till people kind of got to realize what other brands are doing and the differences. And it's a little bit hard, obviously, at times where you sometimes have to kind of try and open up people's minds about, hey, look how bad they are compared to how good we are, which also never really kind of been a marketing strategy that I wanted to go through. But saying that, I think that it's good for people to know where they're spending their 10 euros and what are they getting for 10 euros there or where they get 10 euros here. So it's been a nice challenge. And I think it's just going to get better and better as people kind of realize where they're spending their money and what they're getting for it. And how's the distribution so far? So I see it in Hong Kong in a few running shops. I'm buying it here locally in, in Lantau. I think that it takes a while till we develop all those distribution channels. Right now, it's, it's selling in, in maybe 11 different countries. We still haven't really kind of went into the American market and the Australian market because shipping has been really expensive. So that's something that really kind of slowed down our kind of like going into different regions is shipping and shipping times. And with only about three months ago, we opened a fulfillment center in Germany. So that means that all the orders before that we're getting from Europe, we have to go from Hong Kong. And usually it wouldn't be too bad. Usually it would be five, six days. But then with Corona hit, the prices went five times more expensive. And the time was taking six, eight weeks. We, for I think for about a good four or five months, we stopped all shipping to Europe just because of the prices were so high. And then the time was so long. So yeah, that kind of slowed us a little bit down, but I feel 2021 will get a bit better and we'll be able to get to a couple of different markets. The good thing about Bix is that it's obviously, I, I designed it for runners and active people, but it can be used by anybody. If you work in an office and you have a busy day, you have a Bix during the day, increase the levels of vitamins, minerals, hydrate yourself, a little bit of electrolytes will help. So I think that as we move forward, that product can be marketed to other sectors as well but yeah it just takes time and a bit more stability in the market obviously we've already seen this new lockdown that's happening in europe we've already seen a bit of a drop even even a drop with the reply of the emails that we talk with new shops and distributors because they're kind of also getting a little bit scared of this new lockdown but it's just a challenge that we have to go through but yeah i think that if we can survive the next six months we should be okay because i i can't see a worse economical time for a company like this, where we're so reliant on shipping being an e-commerce pretty much product. We are selling a lot in shops and there's probably bigs in like 50 different shops around the world, but a big part of our business is online. So yeah, hopefully we can survive the next six months and then I'm sure it just get easier and easier. I'm trying to contribute. So I'm, I'm a happy user and I must say your second flavor is uh, really a winner. Thank you. Yeah. So that, so we kind of started kind of working on both of them at the same time, but that one took a little bit longer, just again, testing, kind of sending it back to them. Now we're going to change that, move that a little bit around. And yeah, I'm really happy as well. And I'm sure that our third flavor hopefully will be that. And that's in the works right now. So hopefully that will kind of hit by June, July next year, the third flavor. So that'll be yeah, exciting time for us for sure. So Bix is pretty much a family venture. If I understand that right, I see your wife doing a lot uh, of the marketing activities. Yeah, she does a lot of the marketing and a lot of the accounting and stuff like that. My wife is German, so that somehow comes a little bit easier to her. 
than me. But then again, I was never a numbers or words person. So I think that we work together. I mean, the name Bix is pretty much the first letter of her family name is Bender. So that's the B. And then the first two letters of my surname, which is I and X. So we had that name from both of our both of our surnames. So yeah, it's definitely me and my wife right now. Hopefully as we grow, we might be able to employ some more people. But yeah, 100% just us for now. Oh, awesome. And how is that experience kind of working together in a company? I think it's fine. I think that we both know where what we do and we work together. Obviously, we both kind of work from home for the last six years. So we got used to working from home. If sometimes I want a bit of quiet, I will go to a different room and she will go to a different room. But we kind of do well because we kind of understand the big picture. And I think that even right now with the way we're running Bix right now, we're not thinking about profit. We're rather thinking about building a good solid brand. So I think that what, she's not money hungry. I'm not really money hungry, which is actually kind of easy for me to say, hey, let's spend some more money on hats or this or this. So actually that's been a positive. I think that she's been very understanding with the outlook of the company and we have a similar outlook. Yeah, I think we covered a lot of ground. So I think the most important part is still missing. How can people reach you? Yeah, I'm pretty active on social media, on Instagram, so Vlad Excel, or on Facebook, or definitely YouTube. If people are doing any exercise, I think that basic strength work is very important. So I have quite a lot of workouts on YouTube, also under Vlad Excel. But if they have any questions, I always do my best to kind of reply as much as I can, and always trying to help. And of course, bigsvitamins.com for everything around bigs. Perfect. Then thank you very much, Vlad. No, it was, it was really fun because we got to talk about different things. So I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. This was Life Sparring Round 1 with trail running pro, coach, fitness influencer and founder of Big Hydration, Vlad Excel. I'm your host, Fabian Google. Life Sparring is produced by Thomas Latter. Intro and outro beat are by Marquise Producer. More info about Life Sparring in this episode including all links mentioned in the show, you can find at livesparing.com slash podcast, with a hype. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a like wherever you're getting your podcast from. I hope you join us again for the next one of Livesparing, fighting mediocrity one round at a time. Until then, stay healthy, keep your hands up and protect yourself at all times.